Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone. You might think that walking is simply a case of putting one foot in front of the other and that that's that. My guest today tells something of a different story. They're an award-winning writer of fiction and non-fiction whose most recent offering, 52 Ways to Walk, is full of clearly presented science, snippets of fascinating history, and an enthusiasm for how walking and being out in the world can help us tackle many of life's challenges. Another recent offering in their first foray into memoir, Min- Windswept, Walking in the Footsteps of Remarkable Women, tells the extraordinary stories of eight women who walked long distances in wild and often remote places as they sought their own voices, including Simone de Beauvoir, Nan Shepard, Georgia O'Keeffe, Gwen John, and Daphne du Maurier. In addition to their novels, their short stories and journalism have appeared in various places, including The Guardian, The Paris Review, Tatler, and The Daily Telegraph. I'm delighted to finally connect with them and to welcome them now to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing. Hello and welcome to Running on Joy. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. (laughs) My absolute pleasure. It really is a delight. (laughs) We've already had a lovely conversation just before starting to record. So that's a a win from the start. (laughs) (laughs) And we've just been discussing that you are um, Annabelle Ab, sometimes writing under um, Annabelle Streets. And am I correct that you're the daughter of a poet, Annabelle, and grew up in the Welsh countryside? Yes, yes, that's correct. So I grew up in a very remote part of Wales uh, into a family that was living a sort of I, I think we'd call it a sort of rather bohemian existence now. They were trying to live from the land. It was quite fashionable back then, back in the in the late 60s and the 70s. They were trying to live from the land. So we had chickens and pigs and we grow on and vegetables. And they were also trying really to live from my my father's poetry. So any any poet listening to this will know that that is simply not <laughs> that is simply not possible. So it, it was a very um I guess a very sort of frugal childhood but an immensely happy one neither of my parents could drive so from the minute I learned to walk you know I had I had to walk because if we wanted to go anywhere it was on foot so I was walking quite long distances apparently from quite a young age and that that sort of walking just stayed with me really because it wasn't something that we did uh, 
either as exercise or, you know, to while away the time. It was never, oh, let's go for a walk. It was always just very much bound up with uh, our existence, really, in the way I suspect it was for our ancestors who would never have thought, let's, oh, let's go out for a walk this afternoon. Because they were just walking, they were just walking all the time. So walking was just absolutely fundamental and intrinsic to the life that they lived. And so, and so we lived a bit like that. And we lived in between the sea, we we're very close to the sea, um, and the sort of long green Welsh valley. And because we didn't have a car, we only walked in those places. So in other words, we only walked in places that we could walk to. There was none of this driving to a, a beauty spot or, um, you know, driving for a long weekend of hiking. It was just walk, always walking from the doorstep. So that also has stayed with me. And I'm a really big fan of everyone having uh, a walk. I often call it a 12 minute walk a 12 minute walk that they can just do from their doorstep so that you don't have to think about, um, oh, where are the car keys or, oh, where should we go? It's literally, it, it's so automatic. You just put your trainers on or, or not if you don't, if you want to go barefoot but and you just go. So um, that also, that's all really rooted in, in my childhood. Mm. And that was a very long winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, about- not at all. <laughs> That's sparked so many interesting thoughts, actually. I, I mean, when do you think that we lost this notion of walking in terms of its functionality? Um, because now it, it really is it's a hobby, isn't it? I'm going for a walk or, or perhaps walking the dog. or um, But yeah. walking is something that you do when you're not doing something else rather than a means of transport. Yes, yes. I I imagine it's really I, I imagine i imagine it's all tied up with the advent of the car so i think uh, as soon as the car came along and particularly when uh, everyone started having a car which would be 70s 80s 90s probably it's in the last 50 years really um that's when people have started to think oh i'll drive to uh get my shopping or i'll drive to the allotment or, or i'll drive to see my mother whereas before that you couldn't because there was <laughs> there were, you know there, there was no no car so you had to think well how should I get there and of course there were bicycles for a bit but before that um if you were wealthy you had a horse but most people didn't have a horse or a carriage and and they walked and one of the things I did when I was working on my first book Windswept I, I was looking at women walking I was so cross at all of these books that were written, historical books, not talking about um, contemporary, I'm talking about historical books that were written by men about walking. And I just wondered where, where you know, where, where were the women? Uh, and what what I found was that women just, quite often they, they didn't, they all walked obviously, but they didn't talk about it because it was just something, it was like cleaning your teeth. Why would you talk about it? It was so, so bound up with their lives, whether they were, you know, um, shepherdesses or shepherds or uh, you know, herding goats or geese or, carrying laundry you know they it was just so bound up they would never have written in a letter oh I, today I walked to go and collect the, the the laundry or the geese or whatever but then later on of course uh when it becomes more fashionable to walk for uh for sort of for pleasure really and as a as a hobby then um that's when men start writing accounts of their great hikes and their big walks and this starts of course with with Rousseau who uh, says you know I I can't think unless I'm walking, um, but of course all that all of that time when we think it's just men walking and we think that women are sitting at home on the sofa doing embroidery that's not quite right. 
And when I started trawling through uh, letters, journals, diaries, there were lots and lots of accounts of women who had done walks that I think many of us today would find really intimidating. They're walking at night. They're walking alone, of course, without a mobile phone, without without GPS, <laughs> without without often without maps. They've got no uh, background in uh, orienteering or navigation or map reading. They often don't have a compass. So there's this very, very, um, I think, courageous group of women who just decide to set off and they walk in, in mountains and deserts and, you know, all sorts of places. But they didn't really, they didn't usually write an account. And when they did write accounts, those accounts often didn't get published. So I found a lot of unpublished memoirs of walks that I can only assume when they tried to get them published, they were told by male publishers, oh, no, no, you know, it's really not a good idea for people to know that you walked through the Alps on your own when you were 19. Um you know, or or friends and family who have said, no, 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 you really can't have that published. It, it, it's not good for your reputation or our reputation. So I had to do quite a lot of delving around. Um, but after the delving around was done, there were just, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of women who were all doing extraordinary, long distance, arduous, you know, endurance walks. And often they were doing these walks, which of course was not, you know, I say they were all doing it, but it still was not really that acceptable. And a lot of them write in their letters and journals about um, being taunted and teased and having uh, stones thrown at them, <laughs> being chased out of villages by angry, angry men. So it still still wasn't really acceptable. Um, and and that, you know, that level, I was very, very moved by their, just their sheer chutzpah, really, because then I started walking in some of their... <laughs> footsteps and I was you know making sure that you know I had the GPS downloaded on my phone and I had you know the the portable air bears and you know the, all the nice light food and again they were just going off with these really ancient old backpacks which I went and sort of I went and sort of picked them up and put them on back you know they were made of canvas and leather on these solid iron uh, frames really heavy really unwieldy and they were putting in their, they were carrying, they were carrying things like, you know, volumes of poetry. Almost every woman <laughs> I came across always had a volume of poetry in her, in her backpack. So there was me, you know, making sure I had as little as possible. And, uh, and, you know, I felt slightly fraudulent because they were just wearing, often wearing men's boots, you know, hobnail boots, because there were no walking boots for women. So they're in these really heavy boots that don't fit probably. They're wearing, you know, hand knitted socks. And there am I in my special, you know, special anti blister <laughs> socks, you know, especially designed, designed for my foot. And um, and you know, it just it just made me think, okay, you know, the women have been doing this for a long time, and I think we need to know about them. And uh, I found I found those women incredibly inspiring because when I started in there walking in their footsteps, although I had done a lot of walking. I hadn't gone in remote places on my own. I hadn't backpacked on my own for you know, day after day after day. I hadn't been in the mountains on my own. I hadn't walked at night on my own. So they gave me the courage, really, to try all of those different styles of writing. So I got very carried away and I packed all of these women into the first draft of the book. And I got very excited by all the science because every time, every time I came across something about, you know, for example, Georgia O'Keeffe saying, 
God, I love the wind. I love walking in the wind. I'd think, well, why, why? So then I'd start delving into all the science. I've been blogging on, on science for quite a long time. <laughs> and I ended up with this huge, unwieldy manuscript. And my editor took one look at it and said, oh, no, 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 this is no good. You've got to take, you've got to take at least 50 women out. So they all came out. She said, you, she said, you can have eight. So I ended up with the, you know, the eight of which you mentioned, you mentioned some of them earlier. So a lot went. And then she said, you can't have all this science. It's clogging it up. And in fairness, she was right. So all the science came out. And it was at that point, I was looking at this great stack of really fascinating data that had come out of, you know, very obscure studies from, you know, from universities in Japan, medical schools in Korea, you know, all over the world. There are people doing this um, quite obscure, quite obscure studies that often didn't make it into the media, but I thought were fascinating, you know, all the, all the, the things that then I put into 52 Ways to Walk. And I went to my agent and said, look, I've got all this great data about what, you know, what happens to our heart rate when we walk beside a canal or, you know, what happens to our knees when we walk backwards or what happens to our peripheral vision when we walk in the dark. And uh, I think I can, I think, I think there's another book there. And that was when I started working on 52 Ways to Walk. And in a way that was, that. so that was my second walking book, which made use of all of the science and some of the anecdotal evidence material that had come out of the original uh, windswept research which is why i think i'm sitting here talking to you today about <laughs> about the, the 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 joy the joy and and the science of of movement really and and particular of of walking walking movement it sounds almost like that uh that editing process was like the difference between the original women's backpacks and your slim down version as well when you were fast packing the kind of putting everything in and then everything had to come out uh, do you feel like those women also because you said you know I hadn't done any of this before I hadn't done this long distance walking I hadn't done it day to day I, you know, I was pretty scared not to go out there with the GPS and things like that. Do you feel like they almost also gave you permission to do those things? And why do you think you needed that permission? Mm. That's such a good question. Um, I think they, was it permission? They certainly inspired me. They certainly made me think, wow, if they were able to do that, oh, yeah, 200 years ago, um then you know what the hell is wrong with me <laughs> what is wrong with me now and I did quite a deep dive into my own fear and looking at what was holding me back and I would talk to my friends and they would often say to me I couldn't do that or I wouldn't do that and the more I found myself talking to women particularly women of my generation I've got three teenage daughters who have grown up in quite a different milieu and they are much more—they're um, much more at ease with some of the things that I wasn't at ease with. And I sort of looked back and I thought, you know, was it growing up in the shadow of um, the shadow of the Yorkshire Ripper, which cast such a big, um, a big shadow, really a big shadow over really pivotal years when I was—it um, well, went on quite a long time, didn't it? But certainly in my teenage years, and we were all told, you know, not to go out after five o'clock. Of course, we didn't have phones then. So we were told not to go out after five o'clock, not not really to not to go out alone in the dark at all. You know, just to be careful all the time. And we just I, I think I think at that 
that it's quite a vulnerable age and I think all of that just just stayed with me and of course then it went on because there's always they went on you know there was Fred West and you know there was just a, a seemed to be a sort of catalogue of um uh, you know horrible horrible crimes that were to do with women being out alone uh and 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 in places uh, and and places and times where they were more vulnerable which is which is obviously either on their own or after dark or in places where there weren't other people so so that seemed to have stamped itself <laughs> stamped itself into my brain and also i think into the brain of 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 many of my many of my many of my peers who were just quite and in fact when i started going off on these walks on my own they would message me constantly you know are you all right can you let us know where you are and i was like this is this is a bit ridiculous they were much more aware of it than say my husband who didn't mind at all you know he was just like yeah you go i'm not going to get in touch with you you know whatever uh, and I think that again, it's a, that's, a, that's a male female thing that uh, he, as as a man, he was just like, well, you know, I can walk out. Why, why are you worried? You know, why are you worried? But all my female friends were like, oh, you can't walk on a towpath. You know, towpaths are really, really dodgy towpaths. <laughs> and I think, um, and it's funny, it's, it's funny because it is, a, there's a sort of a definite gender element to it. And we would almost, and all of that checking in on each other, you know, are you safe? Stay safe. Just, builds the anxiety and in a way we all have to sort of step back and, and and we think that we are caring i mean it is it's a caring thing because we're anxious about our about our um, our, our fellow women treading the mountains alone we're worried for them but every time you 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 send that message can you just can you just let me know you've arrived tell me what time you're getting home it, it sort of it sort of doesn't help that general level of anxiety and I've had to work really really hard with my three daughters who have walked in extraordinary places on their own and you know I have just I just not slept for weeks because I haven't heard from them and I have to keep I have to say to myself don't keep saying stay safe stay safe you know look after yourself message me message me and it's really hard it's really hard for a mother to do that I think it's really hard for a grandmother to do that I think it comes more easily to fathers um and I think we all owe it to ourselves to try and find a, a, a sort of a balance so that we are keeping an eye out, but we're not working ourselves up into this sort of state of, of anxiousness. Mm, and that's, that so makes that, sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about that imperative to, to stay safe. It immediately puts the onus on the person as if it's something that we are doing that is our fault that is our responsibility to yeah. stay safe which basically amounts to stay still really <laughs> stay, basically amounts to stay sit on the box. sofa and do your embroidery <laughs> as we were saying before <laughs> we <laughs> would not be very good at doing that but but it, it does doesn't it and yes obviously it comes from a pace of concern and love um but it's that messaging that then drips into being translated as stay still stay where you are don't don't do that don't stay in your lane <laughs> anything um and actually that keeps us that keeps us safe but it keeps us small and not expansive and it keeps our minds small as well and you made that sort of that connection between cognition and walking as well um and I was really intrigued if you don't mind me quoting from something that you wrote about um Simone de Beauvoir in the Paris Review because I think it links to this idea of 
um, how we can also sort of construct identity through through these experiences um, too. And you write, when I took up hiking in my early 20s, the same age that Beauvoir began distance walking, it was a profoundly affirmative experience, reconnecting me with a body that become little more than a source of shame and indignity. Suddenly I could outwalk other people. My legs ceased being flimsy and unreliable. They became a ferocious pair of pistons and a source of deep inner pride. I couldn't catch a ball, but I could walk for hours and hours. Slowly I realized that my body needn't be an ungovernable lump of fat and bone. It could become. Emboldened, I learned to ski, to swim, to hold a tennis racket. I ran, I lifted weights, my body was me. The world began to feel different. And for the first time I liked who I was. I mean, that's an immensely brave and beautiful piece of writing. So firstly, thank you for putting that out into the world because I've re-read and re-read it because um, it certainly strikes a, a chord with me and I'm, I'm someone who also identifies a lot with de Beauvoir's um, experience. And it sounds like at that, that age in your early twenties, which are awful kind of formative years as well, that you had quite a complex relationship with your with your body and your identity um, as a teenager. And I was wondering if you could kind of just reflect on that time and perhaps what kind of then brought you to or brought you maybe back to walking and, and what it gave you. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question because I've thought about it a lot. I was, um, there, are, there are many, you know, these things are always complicated, aren't they? And there are always many, many things, but one of the things that happened to me as a child was that I, I was home educated and being home educated by a poet really means that you, your curriculum is quite limited. So there was a, it was, I mean, it was wonderful. There was a lot of, you know, uh, collecting of wildflowers and writing poems and drawing, but there was absolutely no sport. Uh, and and a similar a similar thing happened to um, Simone de Beauvoir, which of course I didn't know until I started researching her. Um, similar but different in that she was she was seen as being so very clever that she wasn't allowed to do any of the sporting things she was just told to, to sit with her books because she was too clever to um, you know to go and run around after a ball uh, my, my scenario was slightly different in that my father just thought all sport was ridiculous and a complete waste of time so we didn't do any simple we didn't I didn't you know I didn't learn to ride a bicycle we went in the sea in the cold sea every day of the year but we didn't swim so we sort of splashed and it was great fun and we walked but we didn't we didn't move with speed it was very much sort of strolling and ambling and we certainly didn't do anything with the ball so when I turned up at school age 12 after that education I, I can remember it to this day and I think I, I write about it in I write about it in Winsford trying to play tennis I was so so uncoordinated I just I just couldn't do it. And I've sort of learned since then. And again, I've spent a lot of time with my children throwing balls at them. I've learned since then that, you know, childhood is a really formative time when a lot of those those neural pathways to do with coordination, hand-eye coordination, they're formed then. And they, I, they hadn't been formed for me. <laughs> they hadn't been formed for me. So I was never, not only was I not in any teams, but I was sort of humiliated for, for my absolute hopelessness about not being able to, you know, hold the racket properly, not being able to throw the ball my netball skills were abysmal and again at 12 and 13 when you're told to you know to stand aside and just watch because you're really not good enough <laughs> you lose very quickly you lose faith in your body your whole body 
uh, because that combines with a with a, a period of time when suddenly the spotlight is on how you look. So you're thinking not only because I can I not hold a racket or catch a ball or swim or <laughs> ride a bike, but also you know I'm growing in weird ways, uh, and you know my legs aren't short enough or long enough or my feet. You know you're just very 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 aware of your body. And so that all came wrapped up at a pivotal time. And I think it took me a long, long time to sort of unpack that and then to work my way out of it. And I was so relieved when I came across Simone Beauvoir having having a remarkably similar experience. And then later, much later in life, in her 20s, her late 20s, really, just uh, again, like me, she started with walking because she thought, right, that's the one thing I can do. And she started with quite short walks, well, five miles. And then her walks got longer and longer until she was walking 30 miles a day. She was going up mountains uh, and she was and the sense of pride in her, her letters to Jean-Paul Sartre, that sense of pride in her achievement. You know, the, she would just boast that she would boast today. I walked 30 miles and I walked faster than all the men. And I carried more in my backpack. She was so proud of it. And I thought for her because I was feeling that as well but I thought you know you can't go home and boast you know I've walked 30 miles so I'd boast to myself but again you know and and like me from walking she then went on she then learned to ride a bicycle and started going on cycling holidays she as you said she learned to ski and she just started to live in her body and she talks about that so beautifully and 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 she drills into it with such um astuteness really and linking it back to a child, a, a very again, a very gendered childhood where girls were not supposed to do this, these sorts of activities, and they were not supposed to be fast, and they were not supposed to be strong. Um, and she she writes amazing passages, yeah, quite violent passages about wrestling and fighting and punching. But you know, she got caught up in a few sticky situations. She she used to hitchhike to get to the hiking start point and then she would often hitchhike to get back to wherever she was staying and you know on about three occasions she had really nasty encounters and never outside but always when but those were all when she was in an enclosed space hitching and she fought her way out of them you know she threw herself out of a moving uh, van in one occasion uh and another occasion she she literally fought and punched and she, again, she was proud of that. She couldn't, she said much later, she writes about these much later, she said, I couldn't write about them while my mother was alive. She would have been so so horrified and worried. So she kept those, um, you know, what should we call them, unpleasant hitchhiking experiences. She kept them quiet until after her mother died. And then she wrote about them. So she wrote about them much later in her memoir. Um, but, you know, I that, that resonated so strongly with me. I also really love that when you say, that walking gave her a sense that she's a woman who is nothing to do with Jean-Paul Sartre as well. Um, and there's an element there of the idea that actually walking brought her back to a sense of herself as a person who wasn't just defined by who she associated with and with, with an intellect that was not that was maybe an, a male equivalent, but certainly not as superior to her own. And was it a similar kind of strength and perhaps belief in yourself that walking gave you, do you think? Yeah, so, so I mean, she that was absolute serendipity. She would have loved 
Sartre to be a walker, <clears throat> but he hated walking. He thought walking was really boring. And he he claimed to have this allergy to to chlorophyll. He said, I can't go into green places. It's just not me. And, <laughs> and actually, that was one of those one of those little things that at the time she was like, but, you know, she was deeply in love with him at the time. I'd love you to walk with me. Uh, it was one of those things that's just su- such serendipity in hindsight, because he refused to walk with her. She had to go on her own. Um, and particularly when she she started walking when she she arrived as a teacher in Marseille, she didn't know anyone. So there are several things that today we would think, oh, that's terrible. You know, she was lonely and her, her the love of her life refused to walk. God, how awful. But they turned out to be two of the most important things in her life, really. That period of loneliness and having a, a, a lover that refused to walk meant that she walked on her own. So I had always, I think I came late because I'd always had boyfriends that were into mountaineering and climbing and walking so I just sort of tagged along uh, and I sometimes think that perhaps if you know one of the early boyfriends that I I did walk with had said had said to me no I'm allergic to chlorophyll you know I thought would I would I actually have, would I actually have gone out on my own or would I've sat on the sofa and embroidered um it's a good question I don't know the answer and in fact my husband does love walking so so it was it was the book that I was like I'm going on my own and and you know friends would say oh I'll come with you I'll come with you in Gwen John's footsteps. I'd love to do that. I'm an artist too. And I'd have to say, no, no, I have to go alone. And I discovered a, a little slightly to my shame that I absolutely loved being on my own for, you know, day after day after day, just me and my backpack. I thought I started to think of my backpack. You know, my backpack became my sort of my um, sort of my walking companion in a weird way. It was the two of us. <laughs> you know, we were, we were joined, well, we literally joined at the back. And uh, I loved, I loved the, I loved the weight. I loved the weight of the backpack. Um, I loved, I loved, I loved moving with it on my back. And again, uh, people think that's slightly weird. Yeah, why would you want to walk with, you know, twenty kilos on your back? Um, and I, I thought, well, I don't know. But then, of course, I found the answer. And in, in, again, in Simone de Beauvoir, and she writes so beautifully about that wonderful feeling. Well, so it, first, first of all, it's a feeling of being completely free. You've got everything you need. You really don't need anything else. It's all there on your back. You're like a snail. Uh, and there's an incredible freedom with that. But also for Simone, you know, she just loved the, the 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 feeling of pride when she would take off the backpack. She talked so, again, so beautifully about, you know, having walked 30 miles with this backpack. And then she would sit down just aching, dripping in sweat, every bone aching. And she just talks about the feeling of the backpack coming off her and how delicious it was. And of course, she's right. <laughs> it is delicious is a great word for it actually that's not her that's my word but um but again um you know sometimes we just need we need other people don't we to um to remind us that there are different different lenses we can look at things in different ways you can look at your backpack as just being 20 kilos on your back weighing you down or you can look at it as a a friend a friend that's giving you this immense freedom um and, and and helping you to build muscle and to become even more uh, liberated and independent and and then it becomes a wonderful thing yeah and literally giving you such a visceral experience I, I was thinking when you were talking about sweat and things that doesn't feature a lot in in past accounts by women and of women and and to actually sort of luxuriate in in your own physical activity by by noticing that is is really quite a, yeah a luxury I guess really isn't it it really is. And it's very interesting. So when you look at um, these women and their accounts of walking and you compare it to 
the accounts of all of the, the great male walkers, you can the women walk so differently. I mean, they really walk in a completely different way. And, and this is really, I think, most marked in the writings of Nan Shepherd. Mm. So women walk in a way that is much more embodied. So a lot of the men, they will be um, in, a, in a slightly Simone de Beauvoir way, trying to, you know, beat a record or to go some, or go somewhere a bit faster or they're trying to get somewhere. Whereas for the women, it's much more about uh, living in the body on the journey as opposed to the destination and so they write about things that you very rarely find in the the great male walkers they write about smell they write they, they do crazy things the, one woman who's out of print now sadly but i love her writing clara vivian uh she writes about having these midnight moss baths she's walking in germany she takes all her clothes off when it's raining and she goes into wood and she lies rolls naked in wet moss and she calls this a moss bath that's actually not in not in windswept but it, it's in a book i've i just finished uh so and that is something that you never find in a male a male account they will often talk about you know the history that they come across along the way they'll talk about you know the, the great engineering feat of whoever made the the locks on the canals or whatever so it's quite <laughs> a lot of history it's quite a lot of geography um, they'll talk quite often about the wildlife, but the women talk much more about how they feel and the physicality and the joy that comes with that physicality. And I wonder if that's because they weren't accustomed to living in their body. So it felt so, so refreshingly new for them. So women were always, they're always taking off their shoes. <laughs> they're always taking off their shoes and walking. They're always trying to get clothes off. So Daphne du Maurier uh, walks in, in Switzerland, which I talk about. and. You know, it's very, very traditional there back in the 50s and the 60s. So she has to wear a, a, they have to wear skirts, can't wear trousers, and they certainly can't wear shorts. But Daphne du Maurier is, is a bit of a rebel and she has a pair of shorts on underneath the skirt. And as soon as she gets out of the villages, you know, she, she literally rolls her skirt up and, and can show her, her sort of her partially bare legs. But really, you know, with, I think it shows what enormous enormous progress we've made that we can actually now go for a walk in a pair of shorts <laughs> and did you find that doing these walks was something of a personal catharsis as well yes 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 I I did so I'd already had a uh, a sort of a an inkling um I'd already had an inkling because I just when things went wrong in my life I just uh went out walking and I hadn't I didn't I hadn't put two and two together for quite a long time so anyone I look back and I thought I looked at all the big walks I'd done, and most of those were with with a with a, a friend or a boyfriend. And I noticed, I sort of noticed they all they all came immediately after some, you know, quite um, difficult, emotionally turbulent time. And I just hadn't sort of joined them all up, but there I could suddenly see this pattern. And I was facing, um, I was facing a an an empty nest in my in my home, and I. I was, I was struggling with that because they, they, I have these four children and they'd been so bound up in my life. You know, we'd done everything together, walked every, you know, every holiday, I was walking holiday with all of them. And I just thought, you know, I've got to, I've got to learn, I've got to learn to do these things on my own. So the, the book, and again, I didn't realize this till I sort of literally finished doing all of the, the walks in the book. The book was really me um, walking into a new future. Uh, and walking walking away from a, a chapter in my life 
and walking and, and trying to find a new one and, and walking my way into it. Uh, and I think I think a lot of us do that um, without necessarily being articulating it like that. It's al almost happening at a, 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 a sort of a, a, a quite an inarticulate level. We don't really know. We just know we have to get out and we know we have to walk and we know we have to, it has to be longer than a day or longer than an hour. Uh, and it's sometimes you need the distance, you need the distance, you need a bit of space to then look back and think, okay, I was actually walking away from that. Uh, and again, it's not always what you think you're walking away from, which I again discovered both with um with myself and with and with all of these women that they quite often they think I, I need you know I, I need some space because living with my mother has been too traumatic or whatever it is. And it's much later on that they think actually I wasn't walking away from that. I was walking away from something else altogether, something to do with me, uh, or they think I wasn't walking away. I was walking towards. Uh, and those things are so difficult again to unpick. You know, are you walking away from something to get away from it, or are you actually walking into a into a new future? And what sort of future might that be? And why you why have you chosen to go on foot anyway? So there's lots of things, lots of things to think about as we walk, um, as to why we're walking and how we're walking and where we're going to. And are we going to go back the same way or a different way? And are we going to go back, uh, or are, you know, are we going to find new avenues? And it's interesting how that sort of metaphorical, idiomatic way of speaking about what we're walking away from, walking towards, becomes literalized through the act of walking in a way that conflates them in direct contrast to what you were told as a child, that exercise and academia are not to be crossed. <laughs> Whilst actually, it, it, it's not just on a page, is it? It's very much we process things through activity. Um, and the two are very much like complementary, but also self-perpetuating as well. We can't do yeah. one without the other in some cases, can we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Movement. Movement is so um it sounds trite but movement is is so important and I just don't think we give it enough um we don't really give it its due do we we, we treat it as exercise or we treat it as <clears throat> leisure but it's not movement is is life and uh so a scientist once said to me um as soon as you sit down for an extended period of time a very clear message goes straight from your body to your brain that you're dead <laughs> so so yeah apparently that you know i think you'd have to be sitting for quite a long time if you sit if you sit motionless for a long time that that is the message that goes up to your brain okay it's time to turn everything off you know it's coming to an end your life that's it <laughs> so so every time you move you're actually sending a very very different message to your brain which is i'm here i'm alive i'm now i'm going on you know <laughs> keep it all going so again that's the whole you know movement is life and life is movement and and again that's something that was denied to women for uh millennia well well certainly certainly hundreds and hundreds of years um they were confined to the home their movements were restricted um everything even just think about something like childbirth you know we we're supposed to just lie in bed but I, you know we just weren't I think that the idea of us all moving around was was deeply deeply threatening, um, you know, upset the order of things. But actually, we just should be moving all the time. And even actually, you know, now 
um, what uh, I was talking to a neuroscientist about this the other day, he was saying, even while we're sitting here now, Francesca, you and me talking, we, we really should be lifting our feet up and down on the, on the, from the balls of our toes, just sort of lifting and putting them down as if we were walking, but from a sort of stationary position. Because even that keeps the, 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 message, the message going that, you know, we're alive. <laughs> we need that. And it's keeping, also just keeping uh, the flow of blood to an oxygen to the brain so that everything is just flowing around. And it's just that one simple movement um, to do while we're... And, and talking as well of, um, of restrictions and perhaps over, overcoming restrictions, one of the things that strikes me as perhaps another turning point for you um, personally is an accident that you had. And I was wondering if you could reflect on what happened and was whether that was a kind of moment of, of reckoning and possibly transformation as well for you at the time. Yes, yes, it was. Um, it was. So I had been um, at a big uh, London book fair, big book fair, uh, and I was just walking home uh, and just completely normal. It's about, it's about two or three miles from my house. So I thought I'll just walk. Uh, and it was March, but it was very hot. And I was carrying all these books that I'd been given, all my freebie books. So I was carrying, I was carrying a lot of things and I was walking and it was hot. And uh, I started, something started to happen in my head, which I can only really describe as everything, everything around me started to pixelate, uh, to go into little tiny pixels. Uh, and it was very, very strange. I guess if I had migraines, I might have thought it was a migraine coming on, but I'd never had a migraine. I didn't, so I didn't know what it was. So I thought, I'll just, I'll jump on a bus then. So I got on the bus and the pixelating got worse and worse. And I looked out of the window and this bus is just going down. It's just one road. It's just going down one road. And I'm looking out of the window and I don't know where I am. I don't recognize anything. I know I'm on the right bus and I know this, I know, I know I should be on this road, but nothing looks familiar. And so I think oh, I better get off the bus because I, I I don't know I don't know you know where I'm I don't I just don't know what I'm doing. So I got off the bus and I thought I don't know where my street is, uh, and I've lived I've lived here for over twenty years, so this is rather embarrassing. I don't know where my street is, uh, but I could still I could still part of my brain was still working. I could still read, so I just walk up and down and I saw the sign for my street, and I thought okay I know I can read and that's my street, so I must live here. <laughs> so I started walking up and down my street. I couldn't find my front door, um, and. I, I, by this time, I'm slightly panicking because everything is pixelating even more. Everything is fragmenting. It's sort of like some sort of weird experience that I can't really explain other than to say I could feel parts of my brain were just shutting down. You know, one by one, they were shutting down. And I thought, I've, I've just got to get inside my house. I, I, you know, maybe if I sit down. Uh, anyway, I didn't make it. I couldn't find my house and I didn't make it that far. And I, I collapsed. And um, I came around and I was in an ambulance, <laughs> I was in an ambulance with my uh, neighbour who is a dentist. And she had come out of her house and well, she'd heard this noise, uh, which she, she thought was a supermarket, uh, one of the supermarket, you know, delivery people dropping a stack of pallets. You know, when they drop the pallets on the pavement. She'd heard that. I was, I was actually in my head. <laughs> and she came out and she saw me lying on the pavement uh, and so she, being a being a dentist, you know, knew what to do and called the ambulance, whatever. So, so I kind of come around and I'm in an ambulance and all these paramedics and they're all wired up and, and, and my neighbouring dentist is there. And I'm like, what, what is going on? And I, I got whisked into the hospital. And I was there in, in the intensive care for nearly two weeks while they tried to work out what had happened to me. But during the two weeks of recovery, 
I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't walk, not because of anything wrong with my legs, but because the crack to my skull had uh, shifted my vestibular system, the system of balance. <clears throat> so every time I moved my head, I felt horribly sick. It was a bit like being very, very drunk and on a, you know, a violently shifting boat at sea. So I just had to lie very, very still because otherwise the, the dizziness and nausea were horrible. But but because I could see, I sat, I just, I'd lay there in this bed and I just watched all these people walking and, you know, some were running and some were shuffling and some were dragging bags and scooters. And I just thought they don't know how lucky they are, which is so true. We all take it. We take it so much for granted. And I just made this little promise to myself as I lay there. You know, when I get out of this hospital bed, assuming I'm going to be able to walk properly again, <clears throat> I will never, ever take it for granted. And I said to myself, right, I will never, ever get in my car unless I absolutely have to. So that was the first thing I always if I think I'm going in the car, I just stop at the car and, and I say, do I really need to get in the car? And generally I don't. <clears throat> so I walk. Uh, and then the second thing I, I said to myself was right from now on, my kids, the whole family, we're just walking. If they want a holiday, that's it. We're just walking. We're not going to... <clears throat> We're not going to faff around on the beach with sandcastles. We're, we're, we're hiking. We're hardcore walking. That's it. And my walking life was beginning. And of course, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten how to, I'd forgotten about walking because with um, <clears throat> yeah, four children, it was just endlessly cars. It was just a lot of yeah, sh shuffling around car seats and maneuvering push chairs and, and walking wasn't very pleasant. So we were either on buses or we were in the car or on the train <clears throat> I thought no 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 we're walking so so that was the accident and that was the epiphany and our, our lives sort of changed then but that was also the point where I thought I'm going to write about I'm going to write about women walking because this is ridiculous I'm fed up of reading Robert McFarlane I'm fed up of reading all these men and there's still a lot of them out there hiking and, and writing you're writing very beautifully about it but it's like oh come on this is ridiculous <laughs> you know there's got to be someone else other than Cheryl Strayed, there's got to be someone else walking, another woman. So that was the other epiphany was that I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to do this book. And I rang up my agent as soon as I was better and sort of hobbling around and said, right, that's it. I've, I've got to write about walking. And uh, and and that was the start of the the walking, the, the writing about walking. Is there a part of you that's grateful for the accident? No one ever wants that to happen to themselves. But considering the trajectory that it then put you on, can you reflect on it with an element of gratitude? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 I can. Um, because um, I think, I think, you see, I think human beings, we have a natural propensity to preserve energy. So our natural inclination, this is one of the, the problems that, you know, governments and institutions have with trying to get people more mobile. Our natural propensity is to preserve energy, and it's a total evolutionary. Yeah, it's not that people are lazy or can't be bothered or whatever. It's 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 you know, it's hardwired into us to preserve energy in case in five hours' time a lion comes for us. So we we many of us are constantly um, either, either battling that, or um, you know, or or. or well, we're either battling it or we're, or we're just go. We're just going with it. We're thinking I'll sit on the sofa because my body's telling me, you know, not to go running. <laughs> so, um, so, so that's there in all of us, <clears throat> and more in some than others. And and some of it, of course, is 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 uh, habituated because if you have never moved, it becomes more and more difficult. Uh, and more and more, um, 
requiring of, of energy to move. So, um, yeah, so that, that sometimes those little accidents are what you need to just jog your brain out of its default mode, which is preserve energy, preserve energy, preserve energy. It's really interesting there that you immediately combined an emotional response with a scientific backing as well, because to kind of flip now to talk in a little bit more detail about the book, it's been described as a love letter to walking, but there's a lot of science in it. And actually when you were just, when you were describing lying on your back and seeing these people walking, obviously there was that innate emotional reaction of, I want to do this thing. I love this. I'm, I want to get back to doing a thing that I've been denied <laughs> and look at those people out there doing it. I'm interested in how science and intuition can kind of inhabit the same space and what the research process that went that well that ended up going into the book that was meant for another book but then became 53 ways to walk what did that give you in terms of your relationship to walking to the 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 more sciencey the mm. research process I think um it's a it's a funny area um this sort of yeah, how do we bring together the the more spiritual and the more scientific and the two generally inhabit quite different spaces with uh, a sense that scientists are often uneasy with things that can't be measured and monitored and um, those who are more on the sort of slightly more let's call it the slightly more mystical side you know don't like the um the the, the sort of the, the mundaneness of the scientists who are wanting to collect the data and measure it. <clears throat> but I think there's a really interesting space in the middle, <clears throat> which is um, there's a sort of curiosity space, really, which is, you know, why, why, why do we feel like that? Um, why is that, you know, why is that happening? Why, when I walk in pine trees among evergreens, why do I feel different from if I'm walking beside a, a canal without trees and why when I walk by water why do I have more why do I come home with more ideas for what I'm working on than when I'm walking along a pavement so once you tune into your that, that the physicality we were talking about once you really tune into that it prompts a lot of questions about oh, why do I feel different when I take my shoes off and walk barefoot <clears throat> and, and maybe that is because we we i'm going to be uh, <coughs> a bit gendered here again maybe it's because we are perhaps slightly more uh em embodied in our walking that these questions these questions rise to the surface and 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 we want to know we want to know you know why 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 are these why are these things happening why why i feel why do i feel different here and why do i think differently there and um i found in these obscure often obscure not always often obscure particularly pre-pandemic, they didn't get much publicity, they get more publicity now. Often really interesting little snippets um, that explained, that showed a mechanism so that it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just some sort of mystical divine thing that I walk under a pine tree and wow, I feel good. But actually when I breathe in the terpenes that are produced by a pine tree to protect itself from infection, when I breathe in those terpenes, they 
pass straight up my through my nose they pass straight through that filtration system they cross the blood brain barrier because they're so tiny and they actually change uh the 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 movement of neurons and they actually change pathways in my mind and 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 that is why i will come back feeling slightly different and you know not everyone is as interested in that as i am but i spend as much time as i spend reading sort of obscure diaries and journals of of long dead women i spend i probably even more time actually uh on on the pubmed database which is this huge database where every single uh medical and scientific study is is sort of <clears throat> logged all the good ones anyway all the ones that have been peer reviewed will all go there and i'm on that sad to say oh, hours every day <laughs> hours every day i've probably got a bit of a habit a bit of a problem there <laughs> i've tried to be myself of it but 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 because and these are coming these are coming as i mentioned earlier from all over the world now and again this is this is courtesy of the internet so 20 years ago you'd have had to i would have had to subscribe to all sorts of publications in languages i wouldn't understand but now that it's all centralized so anyone can go and trawl around and uh, I did a I did a master's many years ago uh, in uh, market research and I, I, so I spent a lot of time learning about <clears throat> research and which research is credible and sample sizes and questionnaires and, and all those sorts of things so actually I quite like drilling into a study and thinking actually that one that study's not worth looking at or actually this study is really good um because I think that they um <clears throat> I think I think they they also for a lot of people they give them the impetus to overcome that natural inclination to sit on the sofa. <clears throat> there was a really good study that came out about four days ago that looked at walking and depression, and this came from a university in Ireland, and they had found that uh, a twenty a twenty minute walk just twenty minutes twenty minute walk five days a week lowered the odds of someone getting depression by. Uh, 42 or 43 percent early 40 call it 40 by 40 percent. i mean huge huge it's such a simple thing but for someone who is thinking oh i, I don't like walking or oh, i'm feeling depressed or i'll maybe just take an antidepressant and watch some more netflix you know just having that data they you know they might just possibly think oh well i'll try it because it has a it has a credibility um but i think i think i, I think it works for lots of people and also, it's really, really, in fact, even more important than that, really, is it's a, a bit of a wake up call to um, governments, to doctors to think, OK, maybe before I write the prescription for an antidepressant, maybe I'll suggest that they try this first. So it, it works at, at sort of multiple levels, really. Mm, and it's a really interesting model in terms of embodied experience then feeding into an impetus to research that and find a scientific explanation that then results in someone actually taking ownership over their body and their their pathway, their, their mind, their experience. So it's a really neat cycle in a way that doesn't come from this sort of scientific imposition of a theory that is then proven through experience. It comes from the experience itself that then enables us to enhance <laughs> ourselves yeah. in a way that's about us doing something active rather than having something done to us yes yes that's a really good point um and I think if you're a I mean if you are thinking about the the doctor in the surgery scenario I think if a doctor just says oh go for a walk 
<clears throat> I think a lot of people would probably just think, well, who are you to tell me that? <clears throat> but again, if a doctor can say this study from this place showed this, just just try it and then come back and tell me about it, um, then then people will people will then become more embodied because you're not embodied when you're lying on a sofa watching Netflix <clears throat> or, or whatever you're doing. Um, it's you know you're quite you're quite disconnected from your body, but once you are outside and particularly <clears throat> so one of the reasons I really wanted to write then the the fifty two ways to walk was because so many people would say to me, um, oh you know I'd say I, I, I had a, a black Labrador for fourteen years and I would say oh I need to I would need to walk with the dog, um, can you come with me and they would look out of the window and say, oh it's raining no I don't think I can or oh, it's a bit dark, no, I don't think I can, or it's too early, or no, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat instead. So I thought, well, if I can just have a little nugget of science for each of their protestations, <laughs> then you know, let, let, let's see if that changes things. So I then looked at things like, well, rain is a, rain is a, a classic, really. No one wants to go out in the rain. Only dog walkers are out in the rain. But actually here in England, if everyone thinks well I can't go out when it rains then you know immediately they're they're encouraged back to the sofa and then it it's back into that whole cycle of the body saying oh yes well done you're preserving that that vital energy um but in fact when you go out in the rain the air is cleaner the pollution is swept away plants produce a whole new um aerosol of uh of biochemicals that we breathe in so uh you know so the air is different the smells are different it's a completely different experience and and again it has different effects on our brain and and the same with with the cold that was the other reason people would always give me i know i, I can't go out it's too cold <laughs> but actually now we're learning that you know that that every time we stress our body in that manageable way whether that's going out in the cold or being a little bit hungry or maybe going out in the cold when you are a bit hungry um, that these these stressful things actually um, sort of they seem to sharpen our uh, acuity and they seem to put in place a whole series of um, uh, anti-inflammatory mechanisms. So all sorts of things start happening in our body um, because our body is designed is designed for a bit of stress. And uh, also that stress tell, tells all our cells, uh oh, something's happening. You know, we need a quick spring clean. We've got to get the house in order. So, so all sorts of things just start happening inside your body. So I think um, there, are, there are many reasons that people need to get off their sofa and, and, and have a, a more embodied life. And saying that, do you therefore think that people can still take benefit from working, walking <laughs> in an urban environment as opposed to, to somewhere that is, you know, more in, in tune with nature and plants and all of the benefits of walking in a pine forest. Some people listening to this might think, well, I live like you do <laughs> um, in London and well, I might as well sit on the sofa. <laughs> oh yes, but all, all cities, pretty much all cities, uh, we'll have somewhere that hopefully is not too far away. I, I wouldn't be able to say this in America because they have these such vast areas of suburbia that go on for miles. But here in the UK, most of us will have a cemetery or a park or a canal or a bit of riverbank that we can get to. Even and if I'm really confined to pavements and I'm going into you know the heart of London, I can find I can find a route 
of tree-lined streets. So even just walking down a, a street that's got trees in can help, or a street where the houses have front gardens and there are, there are plants. So, so I, I mean, obviously, it's lovely to be it's lovely to be in the mountains and to be by the sea. But for many of us, that's just not possible. So, um, if you look around on your on your map, or, or just go walking around, you know, everyone has some somewhere green. You know, usually, usually, often closer than they think. But people don't always think, for example, of a cemetery as somewhere to walk. But a cemetery is my my nearest green space is a cemetery, and I I walk there every day, uh, and I absolutely love it. They're very green. They're very they're very wild. They often have more insects and wildlife in cemeteries because they're not sprayed in the way that a, a more municipal park is. So they tend to have. Um, more, more green, more sort of what I call proper greenery than than we might think. I love walking in cemeteries too. I think it's also being that sense of being surrounded by stories. <laughs> We've yeah. spoken about yeah, yeah. walking in the footsteps of other women, but you really do feel like um, you're not on your own walking in a cemetery. I feel you're not on your own. You're, you're. I think you become aware of your mortality, but in a in a positive way you I, I i walk in the cemetery and i think i'm just so lucky to be alive <laughs> I'm, I'm so lucky to be here on top walking not not underneath and you've mentioned so that um backwards walking barefoot walking um those are just two varieties how what are the benefits of mixing up the way that we walk as well oh uh, really really good so in theory, we should um, be mixing up. We should, in theory, we should all be mixing up our movements. So ideally, we'd do, a, you know, a, a bit of a, a bit of a fast walk, a bit of a slow walk, a bit of a dance, you know, just to get everything moving. Um, so, so, so there are lots of studies that have shown that the people who mix up their movement, whether that's playing you know, tennis on one day and cycling on another day, and running on another day they they tend to um do better in terms of longevity because many more many more you know all the muscles are being used and all the different brain pathways are being used and you know, play tennis and your all your hand eye coordination is being used uh, to an extent that it, it perhaps isn't when you walk so different things are being used with different movements so you should mix it up but you can just mix that up on a walk so i will often do a bit of you know i'll, I'll try and um speed up and slow down you know not in a con not in a conscious way not not you know sort of not tracking myself but sometimes I might think oh I'm a bit late so I'll go faster so I'll if I'm going to the go, go to buy food you know I'll walk quickly there and then I'll slow down a bit when I'm walking back carrying my bags but so to, you know, speed up and slow down do a bit of backwards if you can if you're in a place where it's safe to do that maybe have a do a bit of if, if you feel comfortable do a bit of jumping or hopping or um uh, dancing or uh, a, a bit of jogging or you know whatever but just sort of move it up I often walk with um, walking poles not not really around London but if I'm out in the in the mountains I'll, I'll use poles because again poles mean that you're using 90% of the muscles in your body uh, because your whole body is working your arms are working your shoulders are working so and of course they help with uh, balance and all sorts of other things actually so I'm a big fan of poles um and if you're so I do quite a lot of workshops where I show people you know how to walk because I know we all think we all think we know how to walk but actually most of us now are 
getting up from our laptop and we're all hunched over and we get up and we just we just plod off put our shoes on and off we go and what you should do really is when you're on your doorstep you should just spend a few seconds literally un uncurling your spine putting putting your head back where it should be which is not like not thrust forward <laughs> putting your head back lifting your neck putting your shoulders back a little movement in your stomach because when we're working at a desk you know our stomach flops out and again we walk off and the stomach's still hanging out so you just you just need to put it put yourself back into walking position and then you need to walk properly through your feet so using all five of your toes you know we have five toes for a reason but most people don't think about their feet when they walk they just again they sort of, you just sort of plod off but i would always say just just for your, your first few steps just really put your put your mind down into your feet and roll through that heel make sure you're coming down on all the full ball of your foot and all of your toes and you're pushing off from all of that and then and then you know pull in your arms and make sure that your arms are swinging you know just really but loosely but from the shoulders so the whole arm is moving and it should be uh, because that that gives you forward momentum mm. uh, and it also just it, it feels nice uh, but it gives you it, it means that you can speed up more easily because you know um, your arms are, are moving and and it also gives you the this rhythm which I think we all find really conducive to imagination and to ideas. Um, so when you're when you're walking when, once you spend the, you know, a few minutes on your front doorstep and also the other thing you need to do when you get off your laptop is you need to look right out as far as you can into the distance. Because all of our, we're, we're all spending far too much time. We're all spending far too much time on Zoom. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of screens. And if you think of your eyes uh, as two fists, when you're looking at a screen, your your eyes are clenched and the muscles are tight. And we're spending hours like that. So you stand on the doorstep and as soon as you look into the distance, you will feel, you will feel yourself uh, become sort of lighter and calmer. And there's something about that distance that panoramic vision that sends a message to the brain that uh, I, again it's it's probably evolutionary you know that you can see for miles there's no predator there's no one coming for you and you just sort of calm down and of course your inner eyes just relax and then once you've got all that you can walk off and you can have a sort of really beautiful rhythm that works its way you know all from your from your feet all the way through to your to your shoulders uh and and then your brain just starts to meander around. It doesn't have doesn't have to concentrate. Uh, it doesn't have to hopefully look out for traffic because hopefully you're, you're <laughs> which is again of course a big difference for something like a bicycle being on a on a bike um, or or running where you're you're you know you're you're having to work hard and you're when when you run your body produces a whole cascade of chemicals that actually impede creative and imaginative thought. Mm. Um, it, you, your, your brain just can't do that. It, it can't do those two things at once. So you want to find this nice, easy rhythm and then uh, just let your mind, you know, just float around and you will come home either having, you know, a, sort of thought through a, a problem or an issue in a different way or perhaps with new ideas about you know, whatever you're working on. It, it can be anything. Uh, it can be absolutely anything, but just coming back and you'll you'll feel that you you know you you've you've changed you've changed the lens you've changed the lens on your own on your own eyeballs. 
<laughs> and all you've done is go for a walk. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And was it important yeah. to you? You've spoken about different ways of walking there um, or different approaches to a, to a singular act. Was it important for you that there was also different types of walkers represented in the book? Because you introduce us to a kind of whole host of characters who walk too. And was that a conscious decision when you were writing? I, yes, I had accumulated hundreds of <laughs> hundreds of case studies of people because I, I think I must have read every book on walking ever written. So <clears throat> I wanted to open each one with a sort of a vignette about a, a walker who walked in a in a different way. <clears throat> uh, I really, actually, really, just to give the chapter a more human element really because science science can be very dry so there's a chapter on this chapter on walking backwards for example which if i just said walking backwards it's really good for your knees <laughs> you know it's really good for it works different muscles in your legs that would have really sounded very dry but of course i came across this story of this man who tried to walk around the world backwards which was such an extraordinary story of course and he, he lived to be so very old <laughs> i thought he was a great example of why we should all do a bit of backwards walking so so generally the 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 people are there to just sort of st stop the science becoming overwhelmingly dry. And I guess also, I mean, people can feel, uh, but it's again that uh, that human connection and seeing themselves represented in a space that they might not have felt was for them. That that gentle yeah. nudge <laughs> towards yeah. doing something, just as you felt that nudge when you felt inspired by by the women in your previous book. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because again, a lot of the a lot of the walking research I found is quite often done on on treadmills. It's quite often done on treadmills, <laughs> so uh, or in, in laboratories. You know, it's like all the sleep research. It, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in people's own homes. So you know, you have to you have to then look at it and think, okay, well, do people actually walk backwards? And lo and behold, they do. And in fact, I did an interview. I think it was Lauren Laverne. And she said to me, oh, I've just been in Japan. Everyone's walking backwards in Japan. And I was, I was, quite, I was quite surprised. So I sort of did a bit of Googling. And yes, backwards walking is a, a really big thing in Japan. It's not just it's not just me and, you know, the man who wanted to be in the Guinness Book of Records. There's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of very keen backwards walkers uh, over, over, over in Japan, yeah. And there are lots and lots of barefoot walkers. Uh, and it just feels just feels nice doesn't it it's a we've just got so many nerve endings in the bottom of our feet that just go go to they're just languishing most of the time aren't they <laughs> in their in their trainers and socks and <laughs> never feeling anything but you know there again you know it's an evolutionary thing our, our feet are designed to be incredibly sensitive so that we could <clears throat> walk in the dark and we could tell whether we were walking on something that was cold and dangerous or soft and safe um, and and that's all still living in us. So we we need to we need to use it. We need to enjoy it and experience it because one day they may have evolutionarily worked themselves out of our bodies. Mm. And what does walking look like for you now, Annabelle? Oh well, I'm I'm immensely immensely proud to say that my three daughters have turned out to be these extraordinary, intrepid, long distance hikers. I take full credit myself. <laughs> They're obviously all off doing their own thing now, but they will often, they will all walk with us. So in a couple of weeks, we're all going walking in Finland. So we still all, we all walk together. And as a family, it was a really bonding, 
was a really bonding thing for us. And I don't think we'd have bonded like that if we'd gone and, I don't know, <clears throat> sat by a pool with a with a cocktail. Not that we'd ever have done that, but I'm just trying to think of a, you know, off the top of my head, a sort of a more traditional family holiday, perhaps. But because when you walk, you know, you're all together, but there is space in that togetherness. It's it's quite interesting. Walk, another fascinating thing about walking with groups of people is just how again and again it comes back to that that the different sort of rhythm really how you can connect with people and then it's just so easy to disconnect or to move back if you need time on your own you just bend down to do up your shoelace or something and everyone else has walked on and then you have that time to yourself and then you speed up and you can be with them again so it's a really fantastic way I think of of people being together also having some solitude being able to have solitude when they want it, being able to have safety and togetherness when they want it and conversation when they want it. And there's some really interesting data on, on how we change when we're walking with other people. That, you know, when we're walking with people, distances don't seem as long or as intimidating. Heights don't seem, mountains don't seem as high or as steep. Everything is more, um, Do we feel, and I don't quite know why this is, but it is the case that we feel things are more achievable and more doable when we're with other people. So, um, so yeah, so I, so I take them all off and we all, we all, we all still hike together. So I'm very proud of that. But now I'm doing, uh, well, I'm doing all sorts of walking actually. Um, I do, I do lots of walking on my own now because I'm emboldened. <laughs> um, I've just been in the Alps. That was amazing. Uh, so yeah, so I just want to walk and walk until I, well, until I, I finish really, until I drop dead. I hope I hope I I, I hope I die in the middle of a walk. <laughs> but not just yet. <laughs> and is your writing also continuing down this pathway? Yeah, so I've just finished a book that comes out next year and that's that's actually about dark that's about darkness and the night. But it's got a whole it's got a chapter on sleeping women who slept out, women who I call it tramp camping, but women who sort of slept rough for 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 pleasure. Uh, not not because they needed to, um, and women who walked at night. So it's a chapter on walking at night, chapter on forests at night, chapter on swimming at night. So it's, it's, it's about movement, moving in the dark, because that is complete. That is a whole new. That is a whole new world. Moving under the stars when it's so dark you can't see, or when it's a full moon, completely changing. It completely changes everything. Absolutely everything in every possible way. So so I've just finished a book on that, and I'm just about to start a book on how we change in different landscapes so we, we were talking chatting earlier before we started about uh, canals that's a chapter yes. on canals uh but about you know how how we how we see things differently or feel differently or or, or come home changed uh, according to where we've spent the time whether that's mountains or sea or cemeteries or city centers um so that and that will, that's not going to be out for a couple of years so maybe even three years it's so interesting that so many of these things, like with darkness, like with walking alone, um, like with different landscapes, they can be a source of a fear that maybe stops us from doing it. But then also paradoxically, they're the thing that liberates us as well. And it's how we we negotiate and navigate that line that then takes us to to the sense of expansiveness and and as you were just saying, kind of bringing yourself back to yourself in a way and creating space. I was struck at the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about the women 
putting everything in their backpack, <laughs> like with your first draft of your book as well. And, you know, that idea of um, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own and actually having everything on your back is taking the room and putting it where you want it and allowing it to mm. just expand beyond all horizons that you could have even thought of really and it's, it's yes. making your own horizon making your own way of walking making your own way of being making your own yes. space <laughs> yes yes I think it's a, a line in Windswept where I do talk about Virginia Woolf um, and her you know every woman should have a room of her own and I sort of changed that to every woman should have a root of her own just somewhere where she can walk alone really and feel um feel safe uh, and feel free and and feel absolutely herself and Annabelle before I ask my final question um where is the best place for people to find your books um your articles and and to follow your walking and your roots <laughs> well the books um are available in all the usual places um bookshops or um uh bookshop.org or amazon or anywhere really so they're in all the usual places uh i am uh on instagram um that's where I, that's my the only bit of social media that i'd like really so i'm sort of on twitter but I don't, i'm not really there <laughs> i'm not a sort of shadow person and i'm a sort of shadow person on facebook but instagram i do i do put up bits of you know the latest research that comes in on walking I'll, I'll write about that or I'll write about where I'm walking um yeah and that's just at at Annabelle Abs so that will be um that's under Abs yeah Annabelle A-N-N-A-B-E-L-A-B-B-S thank you I'll put that in the show notes for people because there's some valuable insights and information there and my final question which I ask all my guests is what does joy mean to you Annabelle um, joy means putting one foot in front of the other. I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> I'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.